Uh, we're going to be back in John chapter 14 this morning, the end of John chapter 14. And um, we have like a ton of stuff to move through. Uh, so I'm just going to ask you to strap in and get ready. And, uh, and we're going to do this together this morning. A lot of stuff. Uh, but before we dive in, um, let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had so far to be together, uh, to sing and worship, hear from your word. God, I pray now that as we dive into the end of John chapter 14, that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and minds and draw us to yourself. God, I pray uh, that during our time together this morning that you would create and instill within our hearts and minds a longing for you, a longing to know you, a longing to be connected to you, to abide with you. Got to pray that, um, that during this time that, that my words would uh, accomplish what you would have them, God, that your Holy Spirit would be at work. Not that my words are important, God, but that we would hear your words. And Holy Father, we ask all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. I'm going to read them all. Like I said, it's a long passage. So hang in there with me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that it, when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. These words in John chapter 14 were spoken just hours before Jesus' death. And what Jesus is saying here assumes that he, as he said he would do in John 
chapter 10, verse 15, is about to lay down his life for his sheep. For these, he's friends and for the world. These disciples, these friends that Jesus is talking to, uh, they haven't fully grasped what Jesus is talking about yet. He's talking about going away and coming back again. And he's talking about sending a helper. And they're probably a little bit confused. And they're probably a little bit troubled by what Jesus is saying. And they're grasping to understand what Jesus is talking about. And I think most of us can understand that feeling of being troubled, being faced with the prospect of being separated from someone that we care about or someone that we love deeply. The prospect of being separated um, is deeply difficult. For whatever reason you might be separated, it's, it's never easy. When I first was uh, thinking about this passage this past week, and thinking about being separated from someone I love, I thought of something um, maybe a little more humorous than serious, which is what's going on here. Um, but when I was growing up, seven or eight years old was the first time my parents let me live, I mean, let me stay at home by myself while they went out to do something. Seven or eight sounds young, I know, but the 80s were a wild time. And, um, and so it got to be like 8.30 or 9 o'clock or whenever my parents said that they would be home, and they weren't there. And, you know, like another 30 minutes went by, and I thought, well, I guess this is it. I'm on my own now. <laughs> i got to figure this out. They eventually did come home. Um, but anyway, the, the prospect, going back to being serious, the prospect of being separated from someone we love uh, can quite literally be troubling. And so Jesus' message to his disciples and to his friends in this moment is that when he dies, he will live Again, he will come to them again. It says he and the Father and the Holy Spirit will come to them and be with them and never leave them. That same promise that Jesus made to his disciples then is ours today. If we believe in and belong to Jesus, and the key to it all is found in verse 18, when Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. This promise that Jesus will come to his disciples, that Jesus will come to us, um, that Jesus will send a helper, the Holy Spirit, that Jesus and the Father will come and make their home with us and dwell with us. There are two aspects of this promise that I really want to address this morning, um, two aspects of this promise that I want to dive into. And the first is this, uh, to whom is Jesus making this promise? And second, what is the nature of the promise? What actually is Jesus promising here. So first, to whom is this promise being made? It seems explicit to me in this passage that the promise of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit of Jesus coming to dwell with his disciples and with his people, that the gift of God being present with his people in an ongoing fashion is not a generic promise made to the world at large. Or to say it another way, what God promises here to his disciples in these hours before his death is different than say what he promised in a place like John 3.16. John 3.16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But here, in verses 16 and 17, there's something different being promised. It's something being promised that is reserved for God's own people only. And 
verse 16 and 17, I'll read it again. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. Right? Furthermore, this passage tells us that those who do receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, God's indwelling presence, are not simply called Christians or believers. They are described repeatedly in this passage four times as those who love Jesus. Verses 23 through 24 is an example of this. But Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Like what Jesus is promising is a deeply personal and relational and affectionate love from the father only for those who love Jesus. Now, lest we get confused and think that God's love for us is predicated on us keeping His commands, we have to balance what we have here with the rest of Scripture. And we know from places like Romans 5.8 that um, God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for us to love Him before he loved us, and we know that's what John himself believed too, because in 1 John 4, 19, another book that John wrote, he says, we love because he first loved us. So I want to make sure that we understand what it means to love Jesus and what John is talking about. And I want us to notice that loving Jesus is not the same as keeping his commandments. Loving Jesus precedes and gives rise to keeping his commandments. Keeping his word is the result of loving him, not the same as loving Jesus, right? Verse 15 would probably be better understood if we said, if you love me, the result will be that you will keep my commandments. Or verse 23, if anyone uh, loves me, the result will be that he will keep my word. The gospel truth that I learned far too late in life is that being always precedes doing. We belong to Christ, therefore we do as Christ leads and instructs. Right? Loving Jesus isn't a matter of doing the right things. It's ultimately a matter of delighting in and desiring the beauty and the greatness and the glory of Jesus. That's even how John uses the word love in this book. If you look back through John or look through John as a whole, uh, you'll see the way that John uses the word love for uh, example, John 3.19 says, people loved the darkness rather than the light. It's what they wanted. It's what they desired. They enjoyed it. They didn't love the darkness out of duty. They loved it out of craving. Or another example, John 12.43, they loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. They wanted the glory of man. That's that's what it means. That's what loving it means. They longed for it. They craved human praise, and that's how they loved it. That's how John uses the word love in this book. I also want us to understand how he frames the commands of Jesus in this book. Most of the time in the book of John, Jesus' commands are not specific behavioral commands. Those do show up in a few places, 
but most of the time, Jesus' commands are not behavioral. They're about belief and faith. Let me give you some examples. John 1.12, receive me. John 1.43, follow me. John 12.36, believe in the light. John 14.1, believe in God. John 14.11, believe me. John 15.4, abide in me. John 15.7, ask whatever you wish in my name. John 15.9, abide in my love. John 20.22, receive the Holy Spirit. These are the type of commands that are all over the Gospel of John. Commands about abiding and following and believing. Right? So how does this help us understand what it means to love Jesus? Because if the commandments in the Gospel of John are overwhelmingly things like receive, believe, ask, abide, then it makes perfect sense that Jesus would say, if you love me, if you you desire me and delight in me and treasure me, then you will receive me. It is for you that the gift of the Holy Spirit will come. It is to you, it is in you that the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son will come to dwell. Indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit is only meant for those who are uniquely connected to Jesus. And the gospel truth of being connected to Jesus is that Jesus has already done the work to enable us to love him. The good news is that Jesus has freed us up to, God, to love God by making a way for us to do that, by enabling us to do that. We couldn't do it on, on our own if we tried. And Jesus frees us from that burden and makes it to where we can. But Moving on in relation to the promise of the Holy Spirit, what exactly is the nature of this promise? I'm going to point out several things from this passage here, but let's read verses 16 and 17 again. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Right, first notice that, the Father, that Jesus says the Father will give us another helper. Uh, another being the key word to start with here. What John is saying is that the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of truth as it's framed here, will be a helper that is like Jesus or of the same kind as Jesus. The language he uses indicates something like not something different. And ultimately, it's a reference to, you know, a much bigger doctrine. It's a reference to the Trinity, one of the most difficult to explain and understood concepts and all, or difficult concepts to understand in all of Scripture. The idea of the triune God is that there's one God who has existed eternally as three distinct persons. And notice that in verse 17, the Holy Spirit is referred to as a person, not as a force of some kind, but actually as a person. In verse um, 17, the idea is that Jesus is leaving, but that the Holy Spirit will come to his disciples such that there's a distinction between the two. Jesus is leaving, the Holy Spirit, another person is coming to be with you. But then in verse 18, when Jesus is talking about 
not leaving them as orphans. He says that I will come to you. So that distinction in verse 17 blurs a little because Jesus is saying when the Holy Spirit comes to you, I'm coming to you. And then verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus and the Father are both coming to his followers when the Holy Spirit comes. Right? It's a difficult thing to grasp, I think, overall. But in some sense, John is reiterating the idea that God wants to dwell with his people. And the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity, a distinct person of the Trinity, who carries out that mission of presence when Jesus is no longer physically present. But what we also see is that when the Holy Spirit comes, in some sense, Jesus and the Father are present with the Holy Spirit as they indwell God's people. And that's part of what Jesus is promising here. Second, I want us to also grasp what is meant by the word helper in this passage. The word for helper that John uses is literally translated um, as someone who calls out or speaks out alongside of you. At this point in time, or this point in history, this word probably had a legal usage that is much closer to what we would refer to as, a, as an advocate, almost like an attorney, or our legal representation. And the same John who wrote these words today saying that the Holy Spirit is our advocate, is our helper, also wrote this in 1 John Um, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Some sense, Jesus is our first advocate, the one who stands alongside us and calls out to God, such that when we sin, Jesus is not beside the Father asking him to be lenient, Instead, Jesus is beside the Father saying, I've already paid the price for this one. Their sins are atoned for. My righteousness covers them. But the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit stands beside us and advocates for us as well. In Romans 8, 26 through 27, Paul writes this. Likewise, the Spirit will help us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What this means is that the Holy Spirit is constantly asking the Father for God's blessings on our behalf even when we don't feel it The Holy Spirit is at work for us. Even when we don't know what to pray, when we don't know what to ask, the Holy Spirit is asking those things on our behalf. We have Jesus as an advocate. We have the Holy Spirit as an advocate, uh, a legal, um, an attorney, if you will, on our behalf, speaking out to God for us to say, this one is mine. My righteousness covers him. This one is mine. God, this is what I want for this one. I'm working on their behalf. Even more than that, I want us to see what Jesus says the Holy Spirit does in this passage. What does he do 
he points us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit actually continues to teach us and to help make Jesus known to us. That's what Jesus says specifically in verse 26. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, obviously, we haven't been present with Jesus in the same way that the disciples were, so we haven't heard the same things that Jesus said to the disciples because we weren't physically present with Jesus. But what Jesus is saying is nonetheless that the Holy Spirit works to make Jesus known to us. We know that for some of these people in this room, the Holy Spirit worked to help inspire scripture, the scriptures that they authored, scriptures that point to Jesus. Even more than that, what we've heard from Jesus comes through the scriptures. The Holy Spirit works to point us to what Jesus said and who Jesus is and how Jesus is revealed through God's word. So it's not that the Holy Spirit is going to reveal some new scripture to us. It's that he's going to work to point us to Jesus. That's what Jesus said. What we know about Jesus is revealed in God's word. We also know that the Holy Spirit works to remind us of who we are in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may, may be glorified with him. The Holy Spirit not only works to um, point you to Jesus, the Holy Spirit works to remind you of who you belong to, what family you belong to, to remind you of who has worked on your behalf, to remind you that you are a child of God. As you go on through the next few chapters of John, John goes on to talk about other things that the Holy Spirit does. But for now, from this passage this morning, I want us to just try and grasp what the Holy Spirit is dwelling with us as part of the Trinity in order to point us to Jesus, to point us to the Father, that God's presence might be known and understood. Finally, I want us to see what the result of all this is that Jesus is talking about in this passage. And the result of it all is peace. The end result of the Holy Spirit dwelling with you and you dwelling with God is peace. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In the last hours of his life, as Jesus is on his way to the cross, Jesus' concern was helping his disciples, and by extension you and me, to know peace. The peace he has in mind may include the final peace of all things in the new heaven and the new earth. But that is not what he is focusing on here specifically. We know that because he says, right now, guys, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid and don't be troubled because I'm coming back to you. God's presence is coming back to you through the Holy Spirit, and the Father and I will be part of that. 
But also notice how he says the peace he gives is not the kind of peace that the world can offer. The stuff of this world can only offer us peace that comes from living in good circumstances. When our bills are paid, when we have food on the table, and a nice place to sleep at night, and our health is good, the health of our family members is good, and we have a nice vacation to look forward to, seems awfully pleasant. And I want all those things too. But the peace that Jesus offers isn't that kind of peace. It's a peace that exists and is real even when our circumstances don't match our dream. Even when our circumstances don't match the American dream, Jesus still offers a peace that's real. It's a peace that comes not from our circumstances, but from God's presence with us. Not from the circumstances around us, but the fact that the Holy Spirit is dwelling with us. According to verse 27, Jesus is not creating peace for us. He's sharing with us His peace. He says, my peace I give to you. Right? We have this amazing Savior who even as he was aware that the cross was right around the corner, had the peace of his followers in mind. And even though we know that he goes and he prays in anguish before going to the cross, he still sought to calm the hearts of his followers with the promise of his presence. All right, brothers and sisters, the presence of Jesus, the peace of Jesus, these things are for you. Jesus is offering these things to you. And ultimately, that's what Lent is about. That's what our time of observing Lent is about, helping us truly behold what a wonderful Savior that Jesus is, recognizing the depth of our need and recognizing the great love that Jesus has lavished on us. The ways in which Jesus has worked to save us. Not only to save us away from our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death, but to save us to himself that we might have his presence with us. Not only has he saved us and offered us an eternity in his presence, in his presence, he's offered us his presence and his peace in the here and now. He's offered us heaven on earth. So as we move into this time of Lent, technically begins this Wednesday, a day where this church will be open and you'll have an opportunity to come here and meditate on Jesus and pray, think about what Christ has done for us, the peace that he offers us. As we move into this time of Lent where we're purposefully engaging in practices together in our missional communities, praying together, fasting together, reading God's word together, studying God's word, asking questions of God's word that we might understand it and apply it to our lives, that we might know more of who Jesus is, that we might be with Jesus. What is it that we're really doing? Well, part of what we're really doing is seeking to live in the reality of God's promise that the Holy Spirit will be with us. We're seeking to live in the Spirit because it's in the Spirit that we continue to see Jesus rightly and find Him as the way and the truth and the life. 
this time of Lent where we intentionally focus on Jesus, what he's done for us, these practices that we're going to do together, these are meant to help us live intentionally in the Spirit. Intentionally in the Spirit over our flesh by reminding us that our flesh is weak and broken and deceitful, but the Spirit is life. And that Jesus offers us the reality of God's Spirit with us. Jesus actually wants us to have that kind of life that is animated by the Spirit, that abundant life that comes from abiding with Jesus and Jesus abiding with us. Jesus actually wants us to have that kind of life. Jesus is actually offering us that life. And in this passage, Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit is a gift to you, those who are my followers, that you might have that kind of life. We're going to enter into a time of response, and I would just encourage you during that time of response to continue to pray about and reflect on and think about this reality that God lives with us through the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is with us, that he's offering us his peace, that he's offering us a life that's animated by the Spirit that lives in conjunction with God. God is dwelling with us, and we're dwelling with God, and it's an incredible offer that Jesus has given us. During this time of response, even as we come and take communion, I pray that the reality of what Christ has done for us to to make us connected with God, to give us the ability to have God living with us, I pray that that would be real to us. We're going to take communion like we do every Sunday. It's an opportunity to come down the middle aisle, dip the bread in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that was given for us, the blood of Christ that was shed for us that makes all of this real, that makes all of this a reality. Whether you're a member of Redemption Church or not, I would invite you to come and take communion if you can, and so remember the body of Christ that was broken and the blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll continue on in that time of response.